Hello, my name is Anthony Hudson and welcome to my podcast, The Masterminds. Please join me as I bring interviews with some of the very best in the world of sports. From top football managers, club chairmen, sports psychologists and the leading experts in the world of analytics, team culture and leadership. Before I introduce the next guest, I'm really excited to launch a new segment of the Masterminds podcast. The purpose of this podcast, and it has been since the very beginning, is twofold. Firstly, coach development, which is a huge passion of mine. Another passion in my life is animals, specifically animal welfare. Now, coaching and managing has taken me all over the world. I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful. And in every single place I've lived and worked in, I've wanted to do something wanted to open a shelter, donate, volunteer my time. But some of those things I've just always been too busy to do because of my job. So I've decided I'm not going to use that excuse anymore and I'm going to do something about it. Millions and millions of homeless dogs and cats are killed in American shelters each year. And we can make a difference. I've recently partnered with Poor Chicago, which is one of the few non-kill animal shelters in the country. Paws Chicago have built a national no-kill model that has reduced the number of pets killed in Chicago by 92% since they were founded. It's an incredible place and it's an incredible charity. So through education, through awareness, through sponsorship, through support, we can make a difference. Every single dollar that goes towards a no-kill model like this goes directly towards saving a life. So please share, like, comment on this podcast. And for more information about this initiative, please visit www.sportingmasterminds.com where you can find all the information. So please enjoy the podcast. Next up is Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an international speaker, best-selling author, and over his career, he has combined his experience and background within sport to help world-class organizations and teams create a high-performance culture. His most recent successful book, The Barcelona Way, Unlocking the DNA of a Winning Culture, is a must-read. So please welcome Professor Damien Hughes. Damien, it's, uh, it's, it's great to get you on. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, c- can you just give us a little summary about what you're up to and your work in sports and your, your, your recent books? Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for the invitation, Anthony. I appreciate uh, being asked to come on. Um, for those that um, need a bit of background, um, I do a few different jobs. So um, I'm a visiting professor at the University in Manchester, and my area is very much around organisational psychology and change. So it's very much about looking at how do you create high-performing cultures, the dynamics of teamwork, and then how do you build teams that are strong enough to cope with the kind of changes that pressure brings. Um, I do. Um, I've done a few different books on the back of that, where um, I've been fortunate enough to go out and um, spend a couple of years in Catalonia, looking at how uh, Barcelona did it. Um, and I wrote a book called um, "The Winning Mindset," which was a series of interviews with elite coaches, looking at the psychology of how they set up cultures. And then the third job I do is um, I, I co-host a podcast series called. The High Performance Podcast with Jay Comfrey, where we've been really fortunate to just interview elite performers very much around the methodology and the psychology of how they do what they do. So they're the three roles that I um, I tend to do that take up most of my time, Anthony. 
Damien, it's it's interesting because I've been familiar with your with your work for quite some years, and I've read some of your books and and watch a lot of your videos, and I think you do absolutely fantastic work, and it's very very inspirational and educational for coaches. Um, I've re- I've really enjoyed uh, studying some of your 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 work. Um, a few years ago, your your book about Alex Ferguson came out. And uh, I went straight out and got that. It's a fantastic book. So I want to ask you about great managers. I want to ask you about the characteristics of top top managers. You've worked with some of the best. You've studied the best. You've been to some of the top clubs in the world. What are the characteristics, would you say, in your experience uh, of, a, of a world-class manager? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Um I'll probably describe it as uh, as three characteristics, to be honest. Then, so the first one I would say is there's a there's a real humility behind all of these top coaches, and what I mean by that is um, they're humble enough to uh, um, to understand that they don't necessarily have all all the right all the answers themselves. So they're often open to new ideas. They're prepared to bring in people and listen to them. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they prepared to agree with them. They'll challenge and they'll be pretty robust, but they're humble enough to recognise um, that um, they don't have all the answers and they're open to new experiences. Um, I mean, one of the stats about Ferguson that when I did the book on him that always intrigued me was that if you look at his next nearest managerial uh, equivalent, which was Wenger at Arsenal, I always think one of the great underrated virtues around this was that in Ferguson's say, his first 22 years in charge. I know he did 26, but if you take that to be able to compare Wenger, Ferguson had eight different assistant coaches working with him, whereas Wenger in that same period had two. Now, I, that's not a criticism of Wenger by any stretch of um, the imagination, but I think what that told you was that Ferguson was prepared to constantly bring in people that were um, important to the context of which he was coaching but equally that we're prepared to come in with new ideas to challenge him. So if you think about when he first came in, he needed a strict disciplinarian, so he brought Archie Knox down from uh, Aberdeen with him. Then when he nurtured that young talent through, he he appointed Brian Kidd that had been their mentor during the academy years. Then he brought in Steve McLaren, where his brief was about getting the best coach in England to come in then and then. Walter Smith came in, Carlos Quieras, Mike Phelan. These were all people that were constantly challenging him. So I think humility to accept that is is a really important characteristic of elite coaches. I think the second one as well is um, almost um, recognizing that you don't um, that you're not that important. And what do I mean by that? Well, there was a brilliant study done by a um, Dutch economist called um, Stefan uh, Szymanski a number of years ago, where he looked at how much influence does a head coach have over a team's performance? And what he found is, however talented or charismatic or brilliant that coach might be, they don't impact on a team's performance by anything more than 10%. So the, the analogy he uses is, think of it like the prime minister or the president of a country. Um, they're the most powerful person, but they don't wield absolute power. And I think what I've noticed with these elite coaches there is that they keep they have a circle of competence of where they know they can make 
the biggest impact and they utilize that. So they understand, for example, the importance of leading by example. Now, I know you've had Eddie Jones on and Tony Pulis over the last couple of the podcasts, and they're great examples of leaders that role model the behaviors and the culture that they want everybody else to adopt. So Eddie Jones is a good example about that curiosity we spoke about first. He embodies that in his own um, uh, in, in, in his own manner. And then the third factor that I think distinguishes elite coaches is emotional intelligence. They just There's a great example um, that I know we'd spoken about before we came on air that many years ago I was fortunate enough to interview um, the great boxing coach uh, Angelo Dundee. And in our conversation, I was talking to him about the great fighters he'd worked with, like Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard. And, and he stopped me halfway through the conversation and he said, Damien, can I just clarify something? He said, I don't work with fighters. He said, I work with young men that just happen to fight. And the reason that distinction was so powerful is it's that very idea of you're working with people first that just happen to play a sport or work within a particular industry. And they almost never forget that. They put the people and they put people's welfare and, and happiness and security and that sense of belonging in place before they ever try to coach them. So they're the three characteristics. It's a long answer to it, but I'd say that humility, first of all, that ability to understand where they can make a difference. And then the third one is that emotional intelligence to, to put people first are the ones that really stand out for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And I want to I pick up on a point there you mentioned about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence gets thrown around a lot nowadays, and, and I don't think a lot of people truly know what it means. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the Angelo Dundee story because I'm a, I'm a huge boxing fan. Uh, and I know it's been big in your family. Your old man was involved in boxing. And, and, and I know you've studied a lot of top boxers and written books about boxers. Um, but but that, that part where, you know, we're, we're coaching people, not players, is so significant and important to me. There was a quote in your book uh, from Pep Guardiola and he, and he said, tactics are obviously very important, but the great coaches are coaches of people. And I want to just touch upon that. I wanted to, I'm curious to get your thoughts around um, relationships and really the art of coaching and truly what it's all about and this point about emotional intelligence. Of course. Well, I think your point, Ant, is really powerful. That I think emotional intelligence is one of these phrases that, gets banded around a lot and then you ask people what they mean and you'll often get if you ask 100 people you'll get 100 different definitions of it the best one for me that um that i can give you and again it, it, it touches on uh, my work within um, elite boxing the best definition of it came from somebody that never heard the term and um I did an autobiography many years ago of um the great um boxer thomas hearns the five-weight world champion and when I was doing the research for it, I went out to uh, Detroit to uh, go and meet with Hearns. But more significantly, I wanted to meet with his coach, uh, Manuel Stewart. And it was my first visit to Detroit. And I was going to one of the poorer parts of downtown. And I won't lie in the fact that I found some of the experiences a bit of an eye-opener and a little bit intimidating, uh, just in terms of, like, uh, the gangs and the drugs um, and a lot of the sort of social dysfunction was was pretty naked. 
But when I got there, uh, Manny Stewart was waiting for me. And when I first met him, he said, Damien, he said, how do you feel coming here this morning to the Crunk Gym? And I'd never been polite, so I gave him a polite answer. And I said, Manny, it's great to meet you. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to spending a bit of time with you. And he listened to me. He heard me out and he said, that's really kind. He said, how do you really feel? And just that one question seems to destabilize me. And I found myself just babbling away in front of this bloke I'd never met before. I'm saying to him, oh, to be honest, I'm jet lagged, I'm tired, I feel a bit out of my depth, I know you're busy, I don't want to waste your time. And this stream of consciousness just came out. And when he like when I finished, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, Thank you for being honest with me. He said, That now means me and you can really do some good work together. And when I got to know him a bit better, I said to Manny, I, I said, you know, the first morning we met, he said, yeah. I said, why did you ask me that second question? He said, the second question is when we started working together. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, let me tell you what I saw the first morning you arrived. He said, I saw this nervous looking white English guy turning up in my gym. He said, so the first question I asked you, how do you feel? The answer that you gave me didn't match up with what I could see that you were telling me how excited you were, but you didn't look that. He said, so that led me to one or two conclusions. He said, you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. He said, now, if I want to invite you into my world and we're going to work together, I need to know who you are. So the second question, how do you really feel? And the answer that you gave me then, that you were tired and you were nervous and you were feeling a little bit out of your depth, he said, that told me that originally you've been telling lies. He said, but you've been telling lies because you were trying your best to reply which then led me to the conclusion that you were a decent enough bloke so we could work together. Now, Manny Stewart's point on this was he said, every child that comes up those stairs on the same journey that you've just done into this gym feels the same way you do. They'll be nervous, they'll be frightened, it's an intimidating environment. You don't want to be exposed or made to look silly or ridiculous. And Manny Stewart said, and I can't coach you when those emotions are clouding your judgment. So he summed up emotional intelligence in three really simple, succinct words. He said, when you come into my world, my job as a coach is to contain, then explain. Contain, then explain. And the reason those three words are so powerful, Ant, is because the contain bit is about, I need to make you feel that you're psychologically and physically safe. That when you ask a question, I'm not going to make you look stupid. You also need to feel to be contained that we're on the same side, that we belong with each other rather than we're in opposition. You also need to feel that you're going to be valued, that we're going to recognize you as a person and the strengths that you bring. And then the the fourth thing you need is that you need to have a sense of control over the environment. And when we convince you that those four things are in place, and that's by understanding your story, who you are, the person behind it, then your emotional brain gets out of the way and we can then start to explain how you're going to contribute and how you're going to get better. But if if I'm working with you and I'm worried that I'm going to look stupid or I want to be set up for a fall or made to feel ridiculous, it doesn't matter how talented you are or how talented I am. My emotional brain will never fully relax and allow me to listen and learn within that environment. So, I, I, I go into so many environments where people dismiss this stuff as soft skills or they say, oh, is this about doing group hugs and high fives and things like that? And the reality is that unless you do the soft skills, you don't get to do the hard skills of stuff either. It's, so it's not that one is better than the other. It's about the order in which you do them. You need to invest the time up front in, the, in those emotionally intelligent soft skills 
to be able to then get into the hard brass tacks of coaching and making the team improve to be able to win. Yeah, that's a great story. I really appreciate you sharing that, Damien. And, and so on this point of emotional intelligence, would you, from what I get from what you've said, would you say that the, it, it's the ability to, to understand someone, to connect on a level where you, you, you're then able to, to help that person? Yeah, very much. So if you think about it in terms of emotionally, the, the emotional part of our brain is, is, is very much driven by three powerful urges. So the first urge we have is we have a sex drive, a desire to procreate. The second powerful urge we have, though, is to stay out of harm's way and stay alive. So if you're in an environment where you feel that if you get something wrong, when you go into the locker room, the coach is going to tear like tear after you and start to uh, criticise you in a public way, or you feel that your teammates are going to point the finger and blame you, All of the, or you feel that nobody's going to give you the support that's required, what happens there is your emotional brain hijacks everything else and gives you three simple choices which we can boil down to run away, hide, or take the danger on. So what happens in that context is you either start developing loser's limp, so when things go wrong, you start limping and looking to uh, get off the field, a flight road. You either go in your shell and become incredibly passive and the game passes you by, or you become wild and reckless and ill-disciplined and you're likely to get yourself sent off or in disciplinary trouble because there, it's your emotional brain isn't capable of thinking about doing your job and sticking to the game plan. It becomes very short-term and unpredictable. But the third, the, the third driver that your emotional brain has, and this is one that might be of interest for any coaches listening to this, is that we're pack animals by our nature. So what I mean by that is we, we hunt with people that we consider to be similar to ourselves, which is why religion through to Facebook are all powerful ways of creating a sense of identity and belonging. So it can be a really powerful thing. That's what we describe as team spirit. But when it goes wrong, the way we describe that is when people divide themselves up into cliques and you get sort of little pockets of groups starting to emerge in a dressing room. So that's where team spirit then becomes um, an illusion and people start infighting and scoring points off each other. So one of the first things that we often know is that when that happens, what the brain does is you start to dehumanize the other group of people. So you'll hear people say, oh, they, they said this or they're like that. So when you dehumanize them, the next thing that happens is whatever that group says to you, you delete, distort or dismiss their message. You go, oh, they didn't mean that. What they really meant was this. I didn't hear them say that. And that's where you get gossip and you get innuendo and you get all kinds of dysfunctional behaviours that can just destroy a team from inside out. Damien, have you got any team examples? You, we've obviously talked there about uh, out in Detroit, the boxing coach. And, and as a coach, you can you can definitely see that. It's one-on-one and you, 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 you almost have to have that relationship with a boxer. But have you got any examples of the, of the same thing in a team environment? So a football coach working with a, a bunch of players and staff. Have you got any examples of that? I don't need any, any names, but uh, any situation. I went into an environment, this is a long time ago, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep the sport vague because of what I'll tell you next. But um, I went in with a head coach quite early on to a team, um, and I would still describe it 20, nearly 20 years later as being one of the most toxic environments I ever went into. And 
there was all kinds of trouble that was going on in the dressing room. So some of the stuff was like um, performance enhancing drugs uh, were not so discreetly uh, being used. You had all kinds of, uh, there'd been a couple of, uh, of uh, allegations of rape that had taken place involving a couple of players that had been hushed up by the club. So there was a number of things that just morally you'd question when you went in there. But what was interesting was when we first got in the dressing room, um, it quickly emerged that the ringleaders of this sort of toxic culture were the best players as well. So three of the best players, or certainly the highest paid players, were the ringleaders behind the drinking culture and this sort of party and um, performance enhancing drugs behaviour going on. So one of the first things we did with them was, we, in terms of tackling it, we did a really simple exercise. We got the group, we divided them up into groups of three, and we got them to deliver their opponent's team talk for the week after. So we said to them, right, wouldn't you to imagine whoever the team was they were playing, we said, what's their head coach describing you like when he's telling you, when he's preparing his team to play you? He said, don't worry about tactics. What's he describing you like as a group of blokes? And they all had to do a team talk. And what was interesting was they were self-aware enough to know that they would be described as very talented, but quite fragile. That when things started to go wrong, they'd cave in and things like that. So when they all presented it back, we said, are you happy with that as an analysis of you as a team? And their professional pride was strong enough to say, no, of course we're not. So then what we did was we said, how would you like them to describe you? If the, how, how would you prefer them having played you to really describe you? And what we came up with on the back of this as an exercise was, it's a phrase that I've seen adopted in so many high-performing cultures since then, but the phrase I use is trademark behaviours. They become behaviours that define them. So this particular team had three. They said we wouldn't be seen as um, mentally tough, we wouldn't be relentless, and we wouldn't be seen as completely united as one team. So then what we got them to do was we got them to score themselves out of 10 for how well they demonstrated those behaviours in training. Then what we did was we got them to score each other. And what was really interesting was the three ringleaders, the guys that I was describing to you initially, when they sat down and scored themselves for these three behaviours, they rated themselves as nine out of 10. Because from their perspective, they were really talented players and the club was kept rewarding them with higher and higher salaries. And nobody had ever challenged them to say that what they were doing was unacceptable. So they were deluded, but there was, it was obvious why they were deluded. But when we went to the rest of the dressing room and got them to score them, the average mark that they gave them was three out of 10. And that became really powerful then because you can give them feedback and say, these are about behaviours. So they're not criticising you as a person. They're criticising the way that you behave. And we had some real-life examples to do it. Now, the reason that worked really well is because it goes back to this idea of we're all pack animals by our nature. So we all want to be feel that we belong to a group. And when the group is saying to you, stop doing that, that behaviour is unacceptable you have a really simple choice. Now, I recently interviewed um, Mauricio Pochettino um, on that podcast I was describing, and, and he was familiar with this particular phrase, even in Argentina. The choice that you have in, when you're part of a group is, is what they call the FIFO effect, which is you, your choices. You either choose to fit in and adopt the behaviours or, to be uh, Anglo-Saxon about it, you fuck off. Go somewhere else. Go and 
behave like that, but go somewhere else. So Pochettino said when he applied that principle when he came in at Tottenham, his point was it doesn't make you a bad person. It just doesn't make you the right person for our culture. That If you don't like those behaviours that we're demanding, go somewhere else and, and go with our affection. But this isn't the right place for you. So, again, it's a long-winded answer, but what I would say is that, first of all, everything in a high-performing culture starts with this idea of trademark behaviours. Because when, what are the non-negotiable behaviours that deal you when you're at your very best? Everything else then can spin from that. So everything that you assess, so how you recruit players, how you promote players, who gets picked in the team, who gets dropped from a team, who gets a contract, who doesn't, all of that then, one of the big factors has to then take into account the trademark behaviours that define your team and your culture when you're at your very best. Damien, I think that's a brilliant story, getting the, your team to think about the opposition's team, talk about them. I think that's really clever. I want to touch on cultures because, as we know, culture, the word gets thrown around a lot. I don't think people really, truly know what, what, it, what it means or how to go about put, put, putting a culture in, in place. But you have a very clear way of describing different types of cultures, how to implement cultures. It's really simple. It's really clear. I think it's really useful for coaches. And when I hear you talk about the different types of uh, environments and standards and behaviours, um, it really helps me identify even in my past clubs and teams that I've worked with. So can we just can we just go into a bit more detail there? Would you be able to describe your your version or your idea of what, what different types of culture. Yeah. So where this comes from, uh, the research of this, if anyone is listening that is interested, uh, two uh, researchers at Stanford University out in California, two guys called Baron and Hannon. And back in the early 1990s, they had this view that culture could be a competitive advantage. And when people said, yes, we agree, where's the evidence? There was, there was very little out there. So these two guys got funding to go into Silicon Valley and studied this idea that culture could be a competitive advantage. And what was intended to be a two-year study ended up lasting nearly 20 years. And what they found is that if you don't consciously control this, you will get one of five different types of cultures that emerge. So the first type of culture that emerges in this, in, in, in this setting is what we call a star model. Now, a star model is where you go out your way to get the best players you can, you pay them the highest salaries, you give them the best facilities, and then you sit back and wait for all those brilliant players to come together and deliver fantastic results. Now, what we know is when a star culture works, it'll go amazingly well. So if you think of somewhere like Real Madrid um, under Florentino Perez, the star culture there brought them three consecutive Champions Leagues. But on the flip side, and Real Madrid illustrate this just as well as when it goes wrong, it'll go spectacularly wrong. So there was a Spanish coach called Diego Lopez that coached Madrid in the 2007. And he had a great phrase that when he was sacked, he said, the trouble at this club is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. And it's that idea that in a star culture, everyone thinks that they're the star and nobody wants to do the less glamorous grunt work. And that's often what undermines the culture. The second type of culture you get is an autocratic culture. And this is where it depends on one or two powerful characters. So it might be a head coach or it might be a chief exec or an owner of a club. 
where everything is about their their opinion, their mode, and how they want everything done. So you think of somewhere like Chelsea under Abramovich, where they've just turned over a manager every two years in the 17 years that he's been there. And that's not to say it doesn't work, because I'm sure there's lots of Chelsea fans would argue it does. But what it says is, if that autocrat goes rogue or loses interest, the impact of that can be significant. So I think you could formulate a decent argument for Ferguson at United in his last few years under the Glazers. It became very much um, a bit of an autocracy. So when he stepped down in 2013, the vacuum left behind him was significant that they've still not managed to fix completely. The third type of culture you get is a bureaucracy. And this is where you where all decisions are made by almost like committee. So it's like middle managers decide who comes in, who goes out, who gets promoted, who gets rewarded. And what they find in bureaucratic cultures is change happens, but it's a very slow process. So a good example of that would probably be somewhere like Liverpool. Now, I know they're enjoying uh, some phenomenal success under Klopp, but since the Fenway group came in with John Henry um, in 2007, that's giving you an idea that it's taken them nearly 12 years to record their first significant success, which, which was the Champions League. And that gives you an idea of how slow moving it can be. So at one stage when the Fenway group took over, in their first five years, they recruited 55 players, so the equivalent of a team a season, until they got their statistical model right in terms of decision-making. So, again, it's not a criticism of it, but it just shows you that it can be a slower, more ponderous culture if that's the way it goes. The fourth type of culture, though, Anne, is an engineering culture. And this is where you bring in people because they've got technical expertise. So, again, a really good example of this is think of somewhere like Arsenal under the last decade of Arsene Wenger where his recruitment was often of a very similar type of player, like exquisitely talented player, but maybe lacking a bit more of the practical values that they had when they had the likes of uh, Vieira and Petit running their midfield. So it's where you prize technical expertise above anything else. But the fifth type of culture, so whenever you hear people say, oh, we have a good culture or that's a really good effective culture there or a high-performing culture, what you're effectively hearing there, Anne, is what, is called in the research a commitment culture. And a commitment culture is where you have a really clear idea of what you want to achieve, but most importantly, you have these trademark behaviours that underpin what you're trying to do. And then what the evidence suggests is, if you want to deliver high performance, commitment cultures are the way to go. So the evidence of these two guys at Stanford, Baron and Hannon, pointed to the fact that Commitment cultures tended to be, on average, about 22% more successful than those other four types. There's other research from a guy called Paul Zak, a neuroscientist, that said, if you can get a move of around 10% in the direction of a commitment culture, people tend to stay loyal, even when they're offered huge pay rises of up to 36% to go somewhere else. So commitment cultures are the most sustainable way of using culture as a competitive advantage to be successful. So that's very much a large part of the work that I do when I work with coaches is to help them understand what are the principles of commitment cultures that they can put in place to give them the best chance of success. 
Damien, I'm going to throw a scenario at you. G- given the short-termism in, in, in football, would you ever recommend a coach, if you were working with a coach, working with a club, going into a new team, would you ever recommend two different types of uh, approaches? So, so maybe you go into a, a club to start with and, and you need to be more autocratic to start with and then uh, progress and work your way towards more of a commitment culture. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I can absolutely see that. But I, um, and again, I think, but I think that's um, as long as it's being done intentionally with with the idea of moving towards a commitment culture. But you maybe have to go in and establish the law first of all. I think that's a really powerful argument that that might be really necessary. What I'd also advocate, though, one is, that, and I think you can go back a stage before that, before even being appointed. What I'd advise any coach to do is make sure that there is a cultural compatibility with the team that you're joining. Now, I know this isn't necessarily as easy to do um, in in sort of elite sport where jobs can be at a premium. So when an opportunity comes along, you take it. But I'd encourage any coach to say, do your homework in terms of the culture that is there. So that it because there was some research done in Australian rules football. It was a seventy-year study where they looked at, um, at coaches, and what they said is cultural compatibility can be the equivalent of being a first-time head coach, but have or a coach having ten years worth of elite experience. So if you feel that your values and behaviours are aligned to the organisation that can be just as significant as having 10 years of experience already in the sport. So if you think of examples like, think of over in the States, someone like Bill Walsh that was a relative novice when he took over, or you look at someone like Pep Guardiola um, in football terms, these guys were novices, but there was a real cultural compatibility of the organisations they were joining. So that they, so there was almost a forgiveness of the kind of behaviours that they were introducing aligned with the organization so there was more patience in terms of what they were trying to do Damien I want to I want to strip it down even more I I I personally I'm a big believer in a a commitment culture and I've been really fortunate over my career been to places like New Zealand and spent some time with the All Blacks and the Crusaders and the New Zealand, the, the the Auckland Blues, and and have been fortunate to be able to learn and study and see really a lot of the similar things that you're talking about. But if we just keep it really simple, practically speaking, for coaches, how do you go about implementing a a, a commitment culture on a day to day basis? What does that look like? Uh, because as we know, a lot of places it, it's just words on a wall so how do you go about on a day-to-day basis putting that i mean that's my personal pet hate when you go into organizations that have got sort of um what they class as inspirational quotes on the walls and things like that like the amount of teams i'll go into i'll say get them off the wall and they go why and they go because they don't mean anything they're just background noise and sometimes they're inconsistent with what you're saying so the amount of clubs you're going where they have quotes on the wall that say like um Winners never quit and quitters never win. And you go, well, that's not true. I know plenty of winners that have quit. Or, you know, sometimes you have to. So it's just there because you think it sounds inspirational. But the reality is it does nothing to impact on people's behavior. So that would be the starting point for any coach. I would go in and I'd, I advocate a really simple exercise for any coach to do when they take on any team. And I call the exercise success leaves clues. So what I mean by that is 
when you first go in, you're often going to be an outsider. So people think that you're going to come in with all your own ideas and you're going to come in and criticize what's there. Success leaves clues, turns it on its head. So when I work with any team or an individual, I say to them, tell me your best game you've had. So let's choose a, an arbitrary figure like the last six months. I say, give me your best performance that you've delivered in the, in the last six months. And most people can identify one that stands out. So then my next question is, why were you good? Let's talk about why that was such a great performance. And from that, when you do a proper analysis and dissection of it, what you will get are this idea of trademark behaviours. There will behavior there will be behaviours that are very visible and present that everybody can agree on. And then your next question is: so if we can now make sure that these behaviours become consistently applied, do you think that if we can marry that up with talent? we will get better. So one of the guys that advocated this when I spoke to him was um, a man called Cheeky Bagirastein. He was a former member of uh, the football club at Barcelona, and then he became the director of football there, and he now does it at Manchester City. And he gave me what I think is a brilliant quote on this, Antwerp, when we were speaking about that um, Guardiola team um, in, the, um, in the last 10 years or so. He had a great phrase where he said, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. Your behaviour will decide if we keep you there or not. So his point was, yeah, you've got to be a good player that will consider allowing you into the team. But how you behave and conduct yourself will then determine whether you're going to stay here or not. So if you were to, when Barcelona, that team, when Guardiola came in, they did this exercise of success leaves clues and they identified three behaviours that they built their culture on. So the first behavior they had was a phrase I used earlier, humility. And when I asked them about that, they said, by the time you get into our dressing room, you're going to be a multimillionaire, superstar, young 20-something-year-old boy. And they said, so they felt it was really important that you don't come into this environment and showing off your wealth, your privilege, your status, or what you're earning, or what you've won in the past. Because they felt that if you were doing that, that would indicate you lack humility. And if you lack humility, you can't listen. If you can't listen, you can't learn. And if you can't learn, you can't improve. So humility became key there. Then what they did was they said, how does that? Dem how do you demonstrate humility in behaviours? So one of the ways they had at Barcelona was they gave you the keys to a club car and you were never allowed to drive your own personal car into training. So they didn't want the, the car park looking like a high-end supercar showroom for people showing off their bling or status. So humility was the first one. The second one was hard work. They said, you've worked hard to get this far. This isn't the end of the journey. This is just the end of the beginning of the journey. So hard work was in terms of how early did you show up for training? How long did you stay and do extras for? How much analysis did you do of the opposition? So they were looking to see how much you did when you were told to do it versus how much you were just prepared to invest in your own talent and performance with all the little extras and then the third one was put the team first so their point was if you're ever in a situation where there might be a, a clash between what's right for you as an individual but what's right for the team be under no illusions choose the team option so one of the guys that Guardiola brought in when he first took over at um, Barcelona and he's taken the same guy to Bayern Munich and to Manchester City with him is a friend of his called Manel Estiar, who's a former water polo player. 
And Manelas the Art almost serves as the, the guardian of this commitment culture. So one of the nice stories that he tells is that he used to sit on the substitutes bench during games. And when everyone was watching the game, he used to sit and watch the bench. And what he was watching for were who were the players that were cheering their teammates on and emotionally invested in the game and responding to events versus the guys that were sulking or having a private conversation or looking disinterested. Because what he was looking for is that's a behaviour that says, you can say you're a team player, that's easy, that's like sticking it up on the wall. But how do you behave when you've been dropped from the team or you haven't been selected? Because that becomes more and more significant in terms of how you conduct yourself on a daily basis. So if I was any coach started, that would be the way I'd do it. I'd start with success leaves clues with the idea of out of that, you've identified these trademark behaviours. Then what you need to do after that is you then get the players to identify the phrase, again, I use here is I call them cultural architects. If you're a head coach, you need to get the dressing room on side quickly. So once you've got these trademark behaviours of what defines success in your culture, you get the players to vote for who are the, who are the members of the dressing room that embody these behaviours. And, and again, a really quick, simple way to do it is just do give them a pen and a piece of paper and let them vote. Give them all three votes and ask them for, to vote for who are the players that not who they like or who are the most talented, who are the ones that demonstrate these behaviours consistently. And what you get there is you'll quickly discover four or five members of that dressing room that carry extra levels of respect. So Carlos Ancelotti talks about, he calls them his dressing room leaders. That's the same as my cultural architects. And he says that they're the ones that almost carry authority without necessarily having the title of doing it. So when they speak, people stop and listen and pay extra attention. And they become your most powerful advocates there in building the culture when nobody else is watching. Damien, I'm making loads of notes here. This is really interesting. Thank you. I, I, I want to I talk about uh, the difference between values and behaviours. And again, I think we've said this a few times, the word values gets thrown around a lot. Can you describe the difference between values and behaviours and the impact they have on your environment? Yeah, so the, the, some people might challenge on this and say, this is an argument on semantics. I, I would argue it's a little bit more than that. I think values are important, but values are something that are deep, they're personal, and they're intrinsic. So I might hold a value that you would never know anything about. And your values are shaped by your family, your environment, your experiences growing up, that you might hold a view that nobody else would know. So say, for example, you might know people that have some racist values, and that will obviously have been shaped by their own experiences and upbringing. Now, there's nothing you can do about that. The only time you could ever intervene is if they behave in a racist way or in a discriminatory way, because you can observe that behavior and therefore you can challenge it and talk about how it's unacceptable. But a value then is something that allows people just to say that they buy into it without ever having to do anything to back it up. A behavior, you have to give me some evidence that that's what you really believe. So a nice way of explaining the difference is, I believe that your behaviours represent your values in action. So, again, a really simple example is, I hear lots of teams that will say to me, um, 
Oh yeah, we've got a value of trust. Oh, you'll see it up again on the on the locker room walls. They'll have trust is one of our bit, uh, values. So a really simple exercise I do to show the difference between trust as a value and trust as a behaviour. I say I want you to uh, identify the person that you trust less uh, least of all in the dressing room. And now I want you to go up and tell them why you don't trust them. Now, as soon as you ask people to do that, everybody feels really uncomfortable. There you go. But that's the difference between a value and a behavior, because it's easy to say, but a behavior is harder to do. But if that really is the most important behavior that we're going to have as one of our trademarks, we have to get comfortable with giving that kind of feedback. So the easiest distinction is, if, if you can't see it and therefore observe and say something about it, it's a value. If you can see and say something, it's a behavior. And behaviors are easier then to be able to build a culture upon. Yeah, that was a really good explanation there. And, and, I, and I love that story about trust. That was very good. I want to I move on to communication. I'm, I'm really interested in this. And th- there's two parts to this question. The first part is, and, and obviously you've, you've worked with and studied some top, top managers, some of the world's best. You've been in, been in and around and experienced some of the best clubs in the world. So the first part of this question is, what, what does successful communication look like from a head coach in a club environment? What does that look like? Yeah, um, I, I would define it in, um, in five very quick ways. And I often use the acronym STEPS to explain this answer. I talk about the first thing is they keep things really simple. They don't overcomplicate stuff. So I remember many years ago when I was a kid, I, I met um, Jimmy Murphy, who was uh, Sir Matt Busby's assistant. And uh, he, I asked him a similar question that you've asked. And he said, I'll show you the difference between a good and a great coach. And he got a tennis ball. They threw it to me. He said, catch that. So I caught it. He said, how do you find that? So it was easy, Jim. So give it me back. Then he took another one and threw two in the air at the same time. He said, catch them both. And I managed to do it. He said, how did you find it? I said, it was a bit harder, but it was fine. So he said, give it back. And then he threw three. Then he threw four. And on the last occasion, he threw five. He said, catch them all. And I did well to catch one. Jimmy Murphy said, that's the difference between a good and a great coach. He said, what good coaches do is they throw five balls in the hope that one of them of land he said what great coaches do is they spend time beforehand not working about how many balls I can throw but how many can you catch and it's almost this idea of they they don't overcomplicate things they prioritize the most important bit of information and then give you that so if you think about all the examples about you listen to anyone talking about Ferguson and what his strength was they all talk about how clear and succinct and simple his messaging was so the famous one is when he walks in the dressing room and said to the United players, lads, it's Spurs, and then walks out. And Roy Keane, even though they've had the differences, says it was brilliant because we all knew what he meant and he didn't need to go into a lot of detail. He just nailed the point in the simplest way possible. So simplicity is the first one. The T bit of the acronym is they create space for people to think. So they don't just tell you what to do. They allow you to ask questions and think for yourself. And I think Mourinho is really good at this. He uses his guided discovery technique of posing questions and letting the players answer it. The E bit we've spoken about, that's the emotional intelligence of how they do it. The P bit is really, their language is really practical. So they don't use lots of jargon or terminology. They, 
they just make the language accessible. So I remember talking to um, a rugby coach about this many years ago, in a guy called Sir Ian McGeekin, and he said, if I've got a choice between, um, he said, if I've got a room of novices and experts, I speak at the language of the novice because the expert will already understand me, but I need to make sure that the person in the room that knows the least can still grasp the message. So you don't start using acronyms or in-house terms if you're not sure that anyone understands it. So language is practical. And then the final part of it is they're brilliant storytellers. So the best coaches are the best storytellers. What can sometimes appear like um, they're just being uh, raconteurs or they're just like trying to get a laugh. What you'll often find is the best coaches, there's a serious point that underpins their story. So um, you hear that in, in, in lots of different coaches' company that, again, and I'm, I'm only labouring it just because we mentioned it, but when I did the book on Ferguson, the amount of stories that people would tell me the thing was, after a while of listening to different players, they all remembered the same five or six stories. So it wasn't that he was coming up with something new every time, but he'd have stories that depended on the time of season. So one great story he used to tell was he, I, um, he used to get the players together and he said, oh, when I was a kid growing up in Glasgow, he said, I walked past the building site once and uh, there was three builders there. And I said to my dad, what are they doing? And the first builder heard me and he said to me, oh, I'm digging a hole. He said, the second builder said, I'm not. He said, I'm earning £10 an hour. He said, and the third builder said, I'm building the best cathedral in Glasgow. One day I'm going to bring my grandchildren back here and show them what the granddad did. And Ferguson would tell that story around March, April time when the season was coming to its crescendo. And then he'd say to the players, he'd say, what sort of builder are you going to be? Are you the guy that's just turning up to kick a ball about? Or are you the guy that's turning up more worried about your wage packet and how much you get in today? Or are you going to be the third type of builder, the one that's coming into this environment to play your part in helping us create the greatest football team ever? And the amount of players that would recount that story that tells you that the message has gone in and that they could understand that they constantly had to have the idea of how do you play your part how do you contribute to this rather than just going through the motions was the point Ferguson was trying to get them to do. And he'd time it around that same stage every season when he felt that training might be coming a bit repetitive or they were just going through the motions. He'd just throw a little story in like that that shook them up a bit and made them think about it. So I've seen lots of coaches use those five things that psychologically really hit the mark to allow people to remember it and more importantly to be able to do something different on the back of it. Yeah, I love that last part and that 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 last point you made there it ties to my second question that I was going to ask about storytelling. Um, I'm a big believer in storytelling, uh, but I also know that there are a lot of managers uh, that are very uh, analytical, just talk about roles and responsibilities, don't use stories, um, very clear, very direct, and, and are very successful. And then there's managers that do use stories a lot. So my, my question to you is, why are stories so powerful and what makes a story impactful it's a great question uh, and i think it, it taps into a concept in psychology it's known as the kolmogorov complexity now it's named after a russian psychologist so don't worry so much about the name it's the impact what the kolmogorov complexity says is if you tell a story the brain opens up and you can remember more information 
if it's delivered in story form than if you just hear stats, facts, and figures. And that's because it goes right the way back to our primitive way of learning, that when we were, say, hunting for food on the savannah, you had to tell a story about where the food would be rather than just give them geographical points on the map if they were available. So the novelist, Ian Forster, um, the guy that wrote Passage to India and um, great books like that, he used to run sort of uh, retreats for writers. And the very first lesson, apparently, that he would teach them is he'd say, I'm going to give you two sentences. Read both sentences and tell me which one you think is the most memorable. Now, sentence number one is, the king died, then the queen died. Sentence number two is, the king died, and then the queen died of a broken heart. Now, when you ask most people, most people say, I'd remember sentence number two. But that shows you how the Kolmogorov complexity works, because there's more information for you to remember in sentence two, the king dying, the queen dying, and the reason she died, than there is in the first one. But because there's a story element to it, your brain naturally opens up to receive that story. So what I find a really nice technique that I, I share with coaches, and hopefully the guys listening to this might find it useful, is most of us go, yeah, okay, so how do I tell a story when I'm running a session and I'm trying to, get, and I'm trying to think about what I have to do? How do I tell a story? There's a really nice technique that I'd advise that comes from uh, Pixar Animation Studios. When they ever write a film, before they ever try and pitch it, they basically put it through a six-sentence structure. And what they know is, if you can tell a story using these six sentences, you've got what's out there as the best methodology of telling a story. And you can do this with a coaching session. So the six sentences are, once upon a time, or you said, let me tell you a story, or let me give you an example, just anything that highlights the story's on its way. Then you say, every day, and then you establish a pattern of behavior. And then the third sentence is one day, and that's where you break the pattern of behavior. Then you follow it up with because of that, and then your second time because of that. And then the last bit is until finally. So if we right, let's do some off the top of my head now. So let's imagine we're going to tell a story about people listening to this podcast. So, so if using those six sentences. So if I say, right, let me tell you a story about why uh, Anthony's running this podcast. Uh, potential coaches listening, right? That every day we all listen to or read books or listen to podcasts in our ability to try and improve as a coach. One day you found um, Anthony's podcast, which is invited people like Tony Pulis and um, Eddie Jones to come and speak to you about the art and science of coaching. Because of that, you picked up one idea that you feel you could take away and implement with your own uh, group of players, because of that, your players recognise that you're committed to improving as a coach until finally you're playing your part in creating a culture of continuous improvement. Now, I'm making that up off the top of my head. I've just decided that we'd do it. So you can imagine if you've got that knowledge and depth and experience that your coaches have, using that six simple sentences gives you a structure in which you can tell a story and then run your session and everybody's bought into understanding why you're doing it. And have you got any examples you can share, Damien, on, on great stories that you've heard managers share? I know that the Fergie story that you just mentioned was, is fantastic. And I know I'm probably putting you on the spot here, but have you got any, you don't need to name names, have you got any stories that you can share? Yeah, great. So um, I, I was involved, um, 
I, yeah, over the last few years, I've been involved in uh, working on the coaching staff with the Scotland Rugby Union uh, team um, with Gregor Townsend and his coaches. And Gregor's a great storyteller. Um, that I remember one seeing him um, do all. It, it was Gregor and one of his coaches. They did so. They wanted to do a session on defence, right, and get the players to buy into what the um, what they needed to do for a defence session. So the way they did it was they got the players, they turned all the lights off in the room and said, right, let's imagine it's four o'clock in the morning and you're at home, the wife and kids are in bed and you hear the window downstairs get smashed. You go to check and you know that they've got two burglars in the house. Said so your phone line's been cut. You've, you've got to deal with it. How are you going to handle this? Now, who doesn't have an, have an emotional reaction to that? And everybody did. And they said, right, You've got no choice now. You've got to protect the kids. How are you going to deal with it? So automatically, the players had to get into huddles and start thinking about how, to, how they would handle it. So they all had different ways of doing it. But what came out of it was there was three behaviours the coaches wanted the players to buy into. When it was defending, they wanted to go with an element of surprise. They wanted to be fast and committed. They were the three behaviours. So when the players started then talking about how they would handle with a burglar, it was all about... You would sneak down on them. You don't alert them to your presence. Then when you when then when you go to deal with them, you go all out and you really throw yourself into it in terms of you're completely committed. Now, I guarantee you that every one of those players that sat in that coaching session walked out of there and you go back now and they'll still be able to tell you surprise, speed and commitment were the three behaviours that they wanted to build their whole defensive structure on. And that was only because the coaches had invested time beforehand trying to think of a way of setting the narrative and being able to tell a story um, in that, uh, you know, in that particular manner. Um, again, talking about um, great coaches, so one of the other sports is in boxing. Um, and again, and I've mentioned uh, working with uh, Angelo Dundee and meeting with uh, Manny Stewart. Customato was another great example of that. Somebody, you listen to Tyson talk about the impact that he had on Floyd Patterson before he passed away. And they would all talk about how he would be getting them to read books about Alexandra the Great and other great historical figures. And his coaching sessions were then centered around how can you be magnificent and confident and dominant like Alexander the Great. So he was using historical figures to base his whole boxing coaching on that the that his fighters could remember at the forefront of the mind. So there's lots of examples of where these great coaches are working with this idea of a story and using that as the basis of the point that they want to make. I like how you mentioned uh, Tyson and Customato. Uh, when it, it's interesting because whenever I've seen an interview and Tyson's talked about Cus, um, t like Tyson's in, in tears, you know, it, it, the, the effect... Uh, Cuss had on him as a coach was incredible and it goes back to what we were saying before I, I think the biggest thing that came out of it was that Cuss cared so much for him and, and really uh, inspired him and, and, and touched him in a way that, that probably no other did and, and uh, that I mean that's incredible but there was a lovely one do you remember a few years ago when I think Tyson had turned I think he's turned 50 now but I think so it must be 10 years ago when he was 40 and he'd received the check in the post and he, I saw him being interviewed on this where he broke down crying where Customato had taken the money that um, Tyson had earned in his first few fights that he got as his cut 
and he'd invested it in a pension for him that paid him out at 40 because he knew that after he'd be dead and gone, he felt that people would try to take advantage of him and he wanted to give him something that would almost be a bit of a nest egg for him. And Tyson, I saw the interview, he sat and he broke his heart crying and said, I, he was the only man that ever truly selflessly cared about me, that wasn't trying to take something from me. He was constantly trying to give me stuff. And I think you're right, Anthony. I think the best coaches are the ones that convince people, I care about you as a person far um, earlier in the process than I care about you as a player. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that part came out on this conversation. Damien, last question. And I want to talk about uh, media and, and social, mainly social media and the effect it has on, on players, especially young players. Like, I, I don't think it's enough nowadays for, for us coaches just to say, don't go on there, don't use it, it's no good, stay off it. Because the reality is kids nowadays, they live on, they live on social media. But what I'm curious about and what I think is important is that we educate players on on really how to use it and and also educate them on the effects it can have on mental health and 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 ultimately performance so is there is this an area that you've done studies in is there anything you can share about it have you got any information on it i I would say i've looked into it but but um it's not underpinned by any research so it's more anecdotal uh but i think it's a really powerful point that you make um I'll give you an example of where I think as coaches, we need to adapt. Um, and this was brought on really neatly for me that last summer I was doing some work with a team, um, a British team, but we were out in Argentina. And um, I went into the team room one evening and uh, I walked in and the room was like um, shrouded in darkness and all the players were gathered around watching the screen. And what was being, and what they were all watching was a TV programme here in the UK called Love Island. That they that, that downloaded and were watching it. And when I first looked at it and realised what it was, my initial reaction was, "What on earth are you doing watching this?" And then when I stopped myself and thought about it, I thought, "You know what? The program isn't aimed at me or my generation, so it's not something that I should really have an opinion on." But what struck me was, these players are all sat in the same room. They're all watching the same thing. They're all having a joke about it. They're all responding. And I thought. Actually, this is the essence of a great team when the, everybody can come together. And it doesn't matter what the objective is or what they watch it. It's the fact that they were all doing it as a group that was most significant. And the reason I mention that is that I think sometimes we have to adapt. So to say to young players, don't go on social media because we don't necessarily go on it isn't helpful, as you say. I d- I did do a session a few years ago with a team I was working with, and what had prompted it around social media was uh, we had a guy that had been selected to play for the team, and his selection had been relatively controversial. So I got a phone call off him uh, early one morning asking if he could meet me. So I, when I sat down with him, he showed me his Twitter feed of uh, people responding to his selection, and the messages he were, were getting were in a, the only way to be, I could describe it was it was vile. It was really horrible and abusive. And this guy, quite understandably, having read it, was really upset by it. So I had the same thing of you. Like, you can't say to a kid that's grown up online, stop going online because that's not helpful and they just feel we're out of touch. 
So the way we came up with it was we, I, I pulled together a session for the players where I introduced them to the Dunning-Kruger law. Now, the Dunning-Kruger law is named after um, two uh, psychologists, again, uh, uh, they're at Cornell University called Dunning and Kruger. And what it says is, is that if you're good at something, you're able to explain and understand why you're good at it. On the flip side, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to understand why you're not good at something. So the example um, that I use to illustrate that is if you think of programs like America's Got Talent or any shows like that, the bit that most people enjoy are the early stages when the deluded characters turn up and they might say, oh, I'm going to sing like Mariah Carey, and then they sound like a cat being strangled. That's funny for us to, to watch, but that's an example of the Dunning-Kruger law. If you can't sing, you don't have the ability to understand why you're not a good singer. So it's easy to compare yourself to someone like Mariah Carey because you don't have the ability to understand what good looks like and therefore how far away you are. Now, the reason we explain this to the players is we say, right, make a list of the five most important people in your life that are invested in your success, that understand how many sacrifices you've made, that understand what you're trying to achieve, what your dreams and ambitions are, and that really want you to do well. And we say, pull together your five names. And when we do this with young players, they very quickly identify. It's often parents or guardians. It might be a partner. It might be uh, a coach. And it might be a friend. So it, very quickly, you'll get your five players. Say, right, if they said to you, your shit, or that behavior is unacceptable, would you listen to them? And every one of them went, yeah, of course I would. It'd be, it'd really hurt me. I'd want to know why they felt like that. And I tried to understand it. So then we said, right, so anyone that doesn't fit within that circle doesn't become significant to you because they don't understand anything about the sacrifice. And to illustrate it, what we did with this guy who'd received the vile abuse that had triggered it, we had a look at one of the people writing abuse and we sort of went and clicked on this guy's profile to understand it. And, what was very quickly evident, without being unkind about the bloke that was writing this, was he hadn't played the sport he was making comments on at any level. You know, he had no real understanding of it. He was 20 years older than the guy he was writing it about. So the point we're trying to make is, without wishing to do a character assassination of the man, is why would his opinion be more important to you than the opinion of your coach or your partner or your parents? And the answer is, of course, it's not. So we got them to understand, first of all, I've stopped reading it then. If you're going to put a comment like that on, you have to accept that you, you don't read the observations because the people that matter will give you the observations in a different medium than writing on your social media post what they think of you. So that has been, the, I'm not saying it's necessarily been um, is the most effective way, but it's certainly been the most effective way I've found of just trying to get young people to understand the impact of social media and try to manage try to manage it a bit better now i know we were speaking just before we started recording and but one of the other this sounds like a massive name drop so i'll drop it and explain the context um when i was starting to look at this topic i found myself in the company of a uh, jk rowling's husband and because of what we were looking at, I asked him about how his wife handled it. And his answer was really interesting. He said, what she does is she has a public 
social media profile where you can, it's JK Rowling posting, but she also has a private social media account where nobody would know it was her. And he said, the reason for that is she can post stuff under her name, but she uses a private account just to enjoy the benefits of social media, to read accounts or to look at things that she might be interested in without necessarily having to expose herself to uh, the abuse or to any of the kind of trolling that exists on there. So that, again, might be an idea for any young players listening of. If you're going to go on it, have one account where you post public stuff, but you don't read the comments, and then you have a private one that allows you to enjoy the benefits of social media. Yeah, I like that. Damien, there's some really, really good ideas there. That's that's very, very useful. So uh, Great. Thank uh, you. Yeah, look, Damien, I just want to thank you for your time. And I and I have to say, I really, really respect your work. Um, oh, thank you. I, yeah, and I, and I truly mean that. It's been it's been really good to speak to you. And, yeah, likewise. Uh, and I wish you all the best with, with, with your work and continued growth and affecting coaches and influencing people. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. Really, it's been a real privilege to be invited on. And it's been, and likewise, I'm a... I'm a huge admirer of you and the impacts of your work. So um, it's been a real treat to get to speak to you as well. Thanks, mate. Thank you. I appreciate that.